Welcome to the podcast that takes you back in time to rewind and relive all things nostalgia in the world of professional wrestling. Get ready to go beyond the bell. With your host, ring announcer, Sean Beckerman. We continue on our haunted hayride on Beyond the Bell, your pro wrestling nostalgia podcast, as we bring you part two of the best of Halloween Havoc. I'm your spooky retro host, Sean Becker, and back with you to cover the years 1991 through 1994 in Havoc history. From Ron Simmons to the Hulkster, this edition covers the biggest champions in WCW history during the Halloween Havoc time period. Get ready to listen to retro audio featuring the nature boy Ric Flair himself. The icon Sting, the first ever African-American world champion Ron Simmons, Lex Luger, the immortal one Hulk Hogan, and many, many more. Get ready to relive an infamous cage match in WCW and Halloween Havoc history. So after this quick timeout, we kick off the year 1991 in Halloween Havoc history. The High Spots Wrestling Network is proud to partner with Beyond the Bell and is offering my old school fans one free month of the largest independent wrestling network. Using the promo code BTB in all caps, new accounts will gain access to over 2,000 hours and counting of premium wrestling content. The High Spots Network features top worldwide promotions such as PWG, Progress, Rev Pro UK, WXW, and WSU. Start your free trial today of the High Spots Wrestling Network. Welcome back to Beyond the Bell. We'll kick off part two of our series with 1991 Lex Luger versus Ron Simmons. There are two distinct schools of thought in this match. You can say the first train of thought is from the obnoxious, jaded, smart fans of today who claim the match to be horrible and boring. But you could say most of these fans have either recently seen this match for the first time or have gone back and then rewatched it with their goggles on or their smart fan goggles along with their equally negative friends. The second school of thought for this match is that it's not only a pretty good match, I'd say, but also a culturally significant milestone for American wrestling. I say this because Halloween Havoc of 1991 marked the first time in American pay-per-view wrestling history that an African-American wrestler headlined a pay-per-view in any one-on-one capacity. Even though Ron Simmons lost the match in three falls, he did blaze a new trail, paving the way for wrestlers like Booker T. Oh, man. To step into the spotlight and finally be given a chance to shine. The historic nature of this match alone coupled with its above-average quality when you look back at it, makes this match an easy selection for the greatest moments and matches in Halloween Havoc history. 
International World Heavyweight title, the total package Lex Luger against the All-American Ron Simmons and Halloween Havoc. I am especially interested in the battle for the WCW World's Heavyweight Championship with a two out of three falls stipulation between the total package Lex Luger and the All-American Ron Simmons. Never before in WCW has two more gifted athletes with magnificent football backgrounds met for the sport's most prized title. Lex Luger, a three-sport high school all-starter, recruited by coach Joe Paterno at Pennsylvania State and played for the Miami Hurricanes. Then, in the CFL, the NFL, and USFL as an offensive lineman, Ron Simmons, on the other hand, was recruited by coach Bobby Bowden at Florida State University where he ranks as the Seminoles' greatest defensive lineman of all time. The consensus All-American finished in the top ten in the Heisman Trophy race as well. Now here are some comments from the challenger and the champion. This Sunday night, the nation will finally get to see two athletes that match up in strength and size almost identically. At Halloween Havoc Lex Luger, I'm going to be at my best. And you know what Ron Simmons is capable of. You played opposite of me playing professional football. You tried clipping me out of four downs, holding me. This Sunday, it'll be two out of three falls. You can try anything you want, brother. Kick, punch, snap, anything you want. When I put your back on the mat for the one, two, three, the whole world is going to rejoice at my victory. Halloween Havoc. This Sunday night, all the talking, all the posturing, all the contract signing, it's all done with. What it comes down to now is who is the greatest wrestler in the world today. The total package, Lex Luger, the world's heavyweight champion, the measuring stick in professional sports today against Ron Simmons, the All-American, all his footballers, everything culminates in Halloween Havoc. This Sunday night, you get your chance, Ron, to realize your dream in two out of the three falls. We stay with Halloween Havoc 1991, The Butcher Fries. When the talk of wrestling fans shifts to bad gimmick matches, several matches inevitably come up. Most often mentioned are matches like the WWF's Hell in a Kennel fiasco with the Big Boss Man and Al Snow, Global Wrestling's Bungie Cord Bout, believe it or not, or the infamous AWA Turkey on a Pole match. Yes, I said it, a turkey on a pole. One match always comes out on top, though. Time and time again, this match stands out amongst the absolute worst that wrestling has ever seen. Its stupidity was unparalleled to any other. Its execution was absolutely horrendous. And its production was some of the worst ever seen in professional wrestling history. The match is the Chamber of Horrors. Without exaggeration at all, fans, the Chamber of Horrors was the most disturbing yet ironically funny match that any promotion has ever sanctioned, let alone on a pay-per-view. This ridiculous match took eight of WCW's brightest stars and turned them into perversely amusing Saturday morning cartoon characters, believe it or not. At Halloween Havoc of 1991, Sting El Gigante, or Gigante, depending upon where you are, also, you know him as Giant Gonzalez. And the Steiner brothers took on Abdullah the Butcher, Cactus Jack, Vader, and the Diamond Stud, who you know him as Scott Hall, Razor Ramon, in a match of ridiculously absurd proportions. Why, you may ask? Well, the rules were as follows. All eight men were locked, or basically would be locked inside the Chamber of Horrors steel cage. Once inside the cage... Dozens of instruments of torture, quote-unquote, such as baseball bats, chairs, chains, handcuffs, 
brutal weapons like that could be used in an, an attempt to render your opponent helpless. What happens when your opponent is helpless, you may ask? Well, let's once again whip out the trusty old Dusty Rhodes multiple choice approach to find out what this entails. If you were a booker trying to run respectable, athletic, old-school wrestling promotion, the object of the match would be either A, drag your opponent or drag your incapacitated opponent towards the center of the ring, and once they're there, attempt to pin them for a 1-2-3. Or B, you apply a shoot-style submission hold to the injured body part of your adversary, allowing him to possibly give you a quick submission. That's the goal of the match. Or option C, or three if you're counting, drag your helpless opponent towards the tiny cage resting in the center of the ring. Once you're there, open the cage door, lift up your opponent, and attempt to strap him into the electric chair, yes I said it, electric chair, located inside of the small cage. Once he is restricted and secure, signal towards your partner to ascend the cage wall and pull the fatal lever, sending hundreds of thousands of watts of current through your opponent's body and hypothetically killing them. Which one would you pick, fans? I'll give you one guess as to which one Dusty picked or selected. And that would be, of course, the latter, option three. I could not believe it. My, my eyes deceived me, fans, as I was watching the Chamber of Horrors occur. Old-school WCW fans spent yet another $30 on this event, not discovering until the pay-per-view actually happened what exactly the Chamber of Horrors was. They didn't describe it. No wonder they kept the true stipulation so closely guarded until the event, because it didn't make sense, kind of like the WWE now. Just in case you're wondering, Abdullah the Butcher was the one who ended up getting quote-unquote fried. In a silly turn of events in that matchup, his very own partner, Cactus Jack, got confused and accidentally pulled the lever. Sparks flew, very cheap sparks, I may add. Strange circular pyros went off to signify there was, you know, an actually there was an actual electrocution, and the live crowd sat deathly silent to no reaction, horrified by just how terrible this entire match was. <laughs> Rick Steiner with that stick right in the head, using the point of it in the head of Abdullah, and now, again using it as a weapon. Cactus Jack is going up near the switch. Cactus Jack knows the object of this one. And an obvious low blow by Rick Steiner trying to save his brother. Sting pulls Cactus down from the switch. Big Eligante trying to maneuver the diamond stud back into that, uh, that uh, chair of torture area. And I would think because of the chair of torture, because of the opening being facing us, that right now, Rick Steiner is not in a good place. Neither is the duel of the butcher. They need to get away from that front. If there is any strategy, I think that's a very good point, Tony. You would want to stay away from the opening of the chair of torture. 
Man, they're using everything in this match that's not nailed down. We've got some brave cameramen inside the cage. And Rick Snyder's almost in, Jim. He is in. Two men, double teaming. Gotti trying to use that stick on the diamond stud. And Rick needs to get away from that because if somebody's over there and flips that switch when Snyder's in there, his team will lose, and he may lose more than that. Elegante, the biggest man in the in WCW, hammering Abdullah. They're right in front again. Snyder does not want to be there. And Cactus Jack is up near the switch. Cactus Jack is up near the switch. There he is. They're ready. They're going to put Steiner in there. Steiner's got to fight for his life. Oh, he fell into the He's got Abdullah in there. He fell into the What strength by Rick Steiner. He's trying to hook Abdullah. The crowd here going crazy in the opening moment of Halloween Havoc. He's getting cooked. And I think he's well done, guys. What a wild matchup. The ring's even on fire. They use sticks, they use steel. A lot of blood was spilled, and Abdullah felt the power of the chair of torture. the sport probably more years than I like to comment on but I have never ever witnessed a cage match with the ferocity of that one you had eight men in there and their objective was not to pin anyone not even to make someone submit to throw them over the top rope and I don't know the condition of Abdul the Butcher and I don't see anybody rushing to give him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation as a matter of fact maybe Cactus Jack could take that assignment but it it was the, the plan backfired because Cactus Jack thought that Rick Steiner was in the chair, Tony, but when he turned back around, Rick Steiner just belly to belly Abdullah and set him down. Now he's going to try to touch Abby to see how he is there. And unhook him now from the, from the chair of torture. What a wild event this was. Cactus Jack, a little frantic. There, well, he's opened his eyes. Oh, he knocks him down. Ab Abdullah's a little... Well, he obviously is a little deranged. My gosh, he's kicking anything that's around. And Halloween Havoc 1991, The Phantom Unmasks. Unadvertised, a masked wrestler calling himself the Halloween Phantom appeared at Halloween Havoc of 91 and demanded a match 
Tom Zink was the Phantom's opponent. And the masked man wasted no time in dominating the match and putting away Zink with a reverse neckbreaker. Several minutes later, Paul E. dangerously burst onto the interview podium, having recently been given the axe from his color commentating position. Dangerously had found a loophole in his contract that still allowed him to manage. Pissed off at WCW and looking for revenge, Paul E. announced the formation of his new megagroup, the Dangerous Alliance, one of my favorite factions of all time. The first member, the Halloween Phantom. The Phantom removed his mask, proving himself to be none other than Ravishing Rick Rude. Fresh off a WWF release resulting from an argument with Vince McMahon. This was seen later on when he showed up in ECW. Together, Dangerously and Rude vowed revenge on WCW, starting with Sting. The angle was great. Those involved were amazing. And Rude and Dangerously would go on, along with Steve Austin, you may have heard of him, Bobby Eaton, and Larry Zbysko to form a group rivaling that of the Horsemen in sheer talent and intensity alone. Getting our little uh, headsets here. Live television, ladies and gentlemen, and we're having a great time. We hope that you are as well. Tremendous victory for the enforcers, and they just proved once and for all and very conclusively why they are, without a doubt, the best tag team combination right now in the world today. But uh, our big matchup is still to come. But before we go back to the ring, we understand that Eric Bischoff has a very special interview, Tony, with a guy that's always got a lot to say. Yeah, Eric Bischoff right now is at the ringside area, and Eric, of course, was uh, earlier on looking for the Phantom. He didn't find the Phantom, but he has found someone else, and let's go to Eric. What do you say? Eric Bischoff with a very familiar face. Well, thanks, Jim and Tony, and what a great night of WCW action. We've still got our two on a three-fall match for the heavyweight champion of the world to come, but I'm here because I've been told that my former broadcast colleague, Paul E. Dangerously, has some news that is going to shock WCW to its very core. And as Paul E. Dangerously makes his way to the interview area accompanied by Medusa, Paul E. Dangerously, I'll ask you point blank, what is this earth-shattering news? First of all, there's a story that nobody here has had the guts to break. For those of you who have been watching television and haven't seen me for a couple of weeks, WCW is headed by a steering committee. A bunch of modern-day Einsteins that don't realize it's 1991. See, these guys think I'm too controversial. These guys say, Paulie Dangerously, you're too outspoken. So they say to me, Paul E. Dangerously, you are no longer the co-host of World Championship Wrestling. Now, this means war. This means war on the championship committee. This means war on World Championship Wrestling. Because in case you forgot, I happen to have a manager's license. And the way to bankrupt this whole damn company is to take away your heroes. And I'm starting right at the top with Sting. Because what would WCW do without Sting? So, I went out and got the first lady of World Championship Wrestling, Medusa. And I said, Medusa, find me the man that can eliminate Sting for good. Find me this man, and this man is here in this building tonight. 
And Jim Ross couldn't pull his mask off. And Tony Schiavone couldn't pull his mask off. Maybe you could have, but he's been in the back watching the World Series game. Ladies and gentlemen, the man Medusa brought to me is here tonight. His name is the WCW Halloween Phantom. The man behind this mask is the only man on the face of the planet that can help me bankrupt this company till I can fire and fire every single person that has stood in my way. The man behind this mask is the only man that's ever eliminated each and every person in his way. The man behind this mask is the only man that can crush the hopes of the little singers until a man stands over the remnants of his career and says, Ashes to ashes! Dust to dust! Rest in peace, Stinger! Your career is over! Ladies and gentlemen, the next United States Heavyweight Champion, Ravishing Rick Rude! myself, my women, and my money. It just so happens that my money man has a problem with the World Championship Committee. And the way he sees fit to solve this problem is to dismantle the WCW brick by brick. What better way, Mr. Dangerously, to start off than with a low-life scumbag like Sting? You know, Mr. Dangerously, a couple of questions come to my mind being that I never had the opportunity to stand face to face with the stinger. I'm kind of wondering if he's really as small as he looks on television. I'm kind of wondering if he is the low-life garbage collected scumbag that he portrays on TV. Well, Sting, your days are numbered. I'm going to tear apart the WCW, and I'm going to take your United States title. Well, what a situation. What a coup. We knew that Paul had been suspended for being a little too controversial on television. Uh, he has left. He's been gone a couple of weeks, whatever it was. Every story in the world circulated about it, most of them ridiculous and untrue. However, he has returned here, and this is this is like having the number one pick in the draft, and he's picked an All-American. I think it's the big, new, biggest news item of WCW this year, the biggest. And, whoa, what implications? Obviously, he has a, some type of arrangement, working arrangement with Medusa. He has signed some type of situation contractually with Rick Rude. And one thing you can say about those people, 
they certainly made their intentions clear. Very, very clear, Jim. They want the United States Heavyweight Championship from the Stinger. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to talk more about that, I'm sure, in upcoming weeks. But in just a moment, it's the two out of three fall confrontation. Lex Luger and Ron Simmons. Well, Ron Simmons returned to Florida State University to, to prepare for this matchup. Some of you have seen this video. But let's take one more look at how Ron Simmons has prepared for tonight's match. Spin the wheel, make the deal. Turning up in Halloween Havoc of 1992, the next year, on August 2nd of 1992, one of the most memorable cards in WCW history took place within the hallowed confines of the Baltimore Arena. Within this very auditorium, some of the greatest moments that the NWA or WCW ever saw unfolded throughout the years. This night would prove to be yet another storied evening in this historic NWA arena. On this particular evening, Sting was set to compete in a rematch for the WCW Heavyweight Championship with Vader, the man who all but left him for dead at the Great American Bash pay-per-view just four weeks prior. As Sting came out early in the show to be interviewed about the upcoming title match, the crowd was in a complete frenzy. For the first minute of the interview, Sting had the city of Baltimore in the palm of his hands. Unfortunately for the Stinger, things were about to take a turn for the worst. As the interview was winding down, none other than Jake the Snake Roberts emerged from the crowd. He brutally attacked Sting, beating him without mercy. When the Stinger was no longer able to stand, Jake picked him up into his arms, laid a steel chair on the mat, and DDT'd Sting into oblivion. It was absolutely shocking and entertaining at the same time. It was risque at, at that moment, and Jake made it, uh, sold it so well. Sting was escorted out of the arena on a stretcher, and needless to say, his world title rematch with Vader was officially off. WCW head man Bill Watts was appalled by the situation, quote-unquote, but refused to send the Baltimore arena home without seeing Vader defend his title. In a last-minute decision, Cowboy Bill Watts announced that every willing WCW wrestler's name would be put into a hat. Maybe his cowboy hat. One name would be drawn, and that man would go on to face Vader for the world heavyweight title in the main event. Over a dozen WCW superstars stood in the middle of the ring as Watts mixed up the names. He closed his eyes, stuck in his hand, and pulled out a single slip of paper. That name he drew was Ron Simmons. Ron Simmons and Vader went to have an amazing, heavy-hitting power match with the fans in attendance absolutely blowing the roof off the Baltimore arena for the natural Ron Simmons. When the dust had settled that evening in Baltimore, Ron Simmons was the first black heavyweight champion in wrestling history. It was an amazing moment that was, once again, much more real than anything you'd ever seen in the WWF. As Ron Simmons stood atop the ropes in tears holding the big gold belt over his head, flashbulbs exploded as the crowd grew louder and louder by the moment. Thousands had come to the Baltimore arena to enjoy a standard WCW house show and see their favorite old-school wrestlers up close and personal. They left the famed arena having seen the most storied title in all of wrestling change hands with no warning, and they left having seen history being made. Flash forward to mid-October now. 
Sting and Jake Roberts' hatred for each other was getting more intense by the day. After nearly three months of feuding, a match was set for Halloween Havoc to blow off this insane grudge between the two. A normal match wouldn't be enough to end this war. A special match was needed. A match of frightening proportions, fans. Thus, in October of 1992, spin the wheel, make the deal was made. For those not in the know, despite... The fancy name, Spin the Wheel Make the Deal, was basically nothing more than a goofy, oversized cardboard wheel with ten different match stipulations drawn on. The wheel would be spun, and whatever match it landed upon, Sting and Jake Roberts would take part in. The ten match possibilities were a Texas Death Match, a Bull Rope Match, Prince of Darkness Match, I had no idea what that is, Cage Match, First Blood Match, An I Quit match. Coal Miner's Glove match. Yes, a Coal Miner's Glove. Lumberjacks with Straps match. Not just a Lumberjack, not just a Strap. A Lumberjack Strap match. A Barbed Wire match, hardcore style. And the last one, of course, Spinner's Choice. They spent close to a half million dollars creating a Spin the Wheel, Make the Deal mini-movie in which midgets, with eye patches, of course, and bikers coexisted in a secret bar, hypnotically chanting, spin the wheel, make the deal, in a borderline frightening manner while waiting for the stinger. Then, when Sting finally arrives, you have the bikers begin pounding the tables along with the midgets, as well as... Sting shooting laser beams out of his eyes at Jake Roberts. The mini-movie was absolutely horrible. It made the entire thing come off as a joke, and served to further kill off any credibility the goofy gimmick might have otherwise had. To put it bluntly, Halloween Havoc 1992 was absolutely awful. All three of the big matches for the pay-per-view failed on Absolutely every front, you could say. Rick Rude and Masahiro Chono followed up their NWA title classic with one of the worst matches ever to take place on American soil. It was really that bad. The ending involved two or three referees, half Japanese, half American, all running in circles and screaming. The end result, the crowd was pissed that they basically wasted a half hour of on such nonsense. A half hour of their lives were gone. The belt still belonged to Rude, and absolutely nobody cared. The world title match also bombed miserably. Ron Simmons was fresh off his victory for the title and was in desperate need of a credible challenger to be put over. Bill Watts' solution? The Barbarian. Yes, that's right I said, fans. The Barbarian. The man forever relegated to squashing Joe Wolf on WWF Superstars was now fighting for the most coveted title in the business, quote-unquote. The crowd hated this. I can't emphasize that enough. It might have been even more apathy than hatred, I think, from the fans, as not a single person in Philly made as much as one sound for the entirety of this matchup. Simmons won as if there was any doubt of the outcome to begin with. Now, it was time for the main event. After nearly three months of build and weeks upon weeks of speculation as to where the wheel would land, the moment of truth was upon us. Sting gave the wheel a mighty spin, 
as cheap pyros and pyrotechnics sent pathetic sound-grade sparks echoing into the air. The wheel looked like it was about to fall right off its brace as Sting spun it. The whole thing looked more like a bizarre combination of a white trash 4th of July party and the Price is Right mixed together than an actual wrestling angle. The crowd buzzed as the gimmick wheel slowed to a stop. The result? Yes, a coal miner's glove match. Ugh. Bill Watts had filled the wheel with exciting, controversial matches like First Blood, Barbed Wire, and proceeded to gimmick the wheel to land on the absolute worst possible choice. For those unfamiliar with the concept of a coal miner's glove match, let's expand on this, shall we? A normal wrestling match occurs with the only exception being that a black glove is placed at ringside. If you can beat your opponent to the glove, you are free to slip it onto your fingers and pummel him with this basically, it, it was an oven mitt, for lack of a better term, which you, well, we can call it the oven mitt of misery, the oven mitt of misery, if I can get it out right, without risk of disqualification. It's actually not as stupid as it sounds, though. It's really much dumber. The match was terrible. The crowd was pissed off, and the match ended in one of the most inane moments in the history of WCW pay-per-view. As the match winded down, Jake brought his snake out from under the ring, removed it from the bag, and attempted to get the slippery serpent to bite Sting. Sting was savvy, though. He quickly put on the mitten from hell, grabbed the snake by the neck, and pushed the venomous beast towards Snake. In theory, the King Cobra was supposed to sink its teeth right into Jake Roberts' face, right? Much in the same way it sank its teeth into the Macho Man's arm a year prior in the World Wrestling Federation. But in actuality, the snake seemed about as interested in biting Jake as any fan will be wanting to watch that Chamber of Horrors match from Havoc the previous year. Jake improvised by grabbing the Cobra and pushing it onto his face in an exaggerated, completely ridiculous manner. Even more laughably so, the snake refused to bite Jake and instead just kind of grinned as if he knew that it was ruining WCW's October tradition and ruining the big biggest spot of the event. Um, to end the horrible turn of events, Jake cartoonishly fell over due to the pain and venom of the non-existent bite. Sting counted three, the people watching for free at home on their descramblers, like myself, laughed. The people who paid cursed themselves, and the Philly crowd nearly rioted at the same time. The match was horrible, the crowd hated it, and the Snakesman was officially gone from WCW within a couple of weeks. It was horrid, but yet memorable. And the, the uh, off-the-top rope rule has been voted on the 900 number, eight. 8% want the rule rescinded, a bigger landslide than when you were elected mayor of Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. Almost bigger. I want, I have 90%. Fans, this Saturday on WCW Saturday Night, Michael Hayes will lead Arn Anderson and beautiful Bobby to the ring to take on the Steiner Brothers. That's this Saturday night at 6.05 Eastern Time right here on TBS. We've got a lot more to come, but right now, let's take a very special look at Halloween Havoc coming your way October 25th.
I knew you'd come. It was just a matter of time. Yeah, I'm here, so what's the deal? Sting, I'm going to finish what I started in Baltimore. When I get done with you, you wish you'd never been born. <laughs> you talk too much. Get to the point. What's the deal? Sting, relax. What's your hurry? I'm going to take my time and enjoy this moment. Cut the crap. We'll have to come over there and kick your... Sting, you don't get it, do you, man? You don't have a clue. Look around you. This is my playground. These are my people. I'm smiling, not you. It's come down to this. You see, the deal is on the wheel. And Halloween Havoc, your worst nightmare will come true. Twelve of the toughest and most brutal matches in wrestling. That's right. That's right. Brutal. Brutal. You see on the wheel, there's a cage match. There's a barbed wire match. There's a death match. Or there might even be a mystery match. But you see, the deal is, man, you got to step up and spin that wheel. Once you spin it, where it stops, that's what you and I are going to do. What happens? Well, we both go in the ring. One man comes out. The other? <laughs> well, no. You think I'm afraid of some wheel? You think I'm afraid of you? Step out of the fog, Sting. Clear your head. You're not thinking. I'm the master of all these matches. This is no game for me. This is fun, but it's not a game. We play it on my turf and my terms. So good luck, Steve. You're gonna need it. <laughs> <laughs> October 25th, Freddie Miller, where you got to say about that? WCW, TBS, and Halloween Havoc. Don't miss it. Be there. Good night, everybody. Thanks for watching.
Now let's go to 1993 in the history of Halloween Havoc. Cactus and Vader settle the score. The time was late 1992, and after months of teaming up with Abdullah the Butcher to terrorize WCW's top babyfaces, the fans were starting to cheer Cactus Jack. His unique style, his look was compelling. All that combined with the fact that he played the part of a psychotic heel to an absolute, absolute, almost lovable level. Furthermore, Jack's matches were groundbreaking at the time, especially for a time period in which the highest impact you'd see was that of the Shockmaster taking a wicked face bump through a styrofoam wall. The cheers eventually became so loud that WCW higher-ups had no choice but to go against standard convention and turn Cactus into a full-fledged babyface. Rick Rude had recently suffered an injury and needed a replacement in the main event of an upcoming Clash of the Champions show. Harley Race signed a match between Cactus Jack and the returning Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, with the stipulation being that the winner got to take Rude's place in the big event. Midway through the match, Harley Race grew frustrated with Cactus and attempted to attack him. After much provocation, Jack finally fought back. The crowd absolutely exploded at this fact. Vader ran out from the back and together with Orndorff and Race completely destroyed Cactus Jack. Cactus instantly became a sympathetic babyface and a new upper level feud was created instantly. So simple. In the following weeks, Vader and Cactus would go on to have two of the most brutal matches in WCW history. The first match was so violent and bloodstained that Turner execs flat out refused to let the match air on their network. A young Eric Bischoff risked his job and took a stand for the match, emphasizing its importance and begging the higher-ups to reconsider this. Two weeks later, a massively edited, nearly incoherent version of the match aired on WCW Saturday Night. There were more crowd shots and extreme distance angles than on any match that you've seen on WCW television. But nevertheless, the match found its way to the air. I think you can also find it, I think, on Mick Foley's Greatest Hits and Misses DVD. Cactus sustained a severely broken nose, dislocated jaw, swollen eye, and deep laceration on his cheek during the match, but still managed to come away with a surprise count-out victory over the monstrous Vader. The match drew rave reviews from both the, the smart marks, uh, that community, and the casual fans alike. And despite its severe editing, even Jim Ross, who was working for the WWF, secretly called Cactus and told him that he wished he was able to be the one to in the announced position to commentate the match because he thought it was amazing. Little did Ross know that the most violent and compelling chapters of this intense feud were still yet to come. On the following Saturday night, live from Atlanta's center stage, Cactus and Vader were set to collide yet again. What happened that night was something that the fans watching at home, and especially those in attendance, will never ever forget. In yet another horrific bloodbath, Vader and Cactus absolutely pounded the crap out of each other yet again, exchanging brutally stiff blows both inside and outside the ring. Near the end of the match, Cactus charged towards Vader and dove straight for the beast. Harley Race 
ever so willingly managed to push Vader out of the way, sending Cactus soaring straight onto the concrete below. With fire in his eyes, Vader removed the protective matting from ringside, which was at the time extreme and unique, pushed it aside, picked up the injured Cactus, and what followed was one of the sickest bumps that professional wrestling has ever seen. Vader threw Cactus head between his legs, signaling for the powerbomb. The crowd audibly gasped. They were shocked at this. Vader hoisted Cactus high into the air, paused, and then drove Mick Foley headfirst into the pavement. Even as a relative youngster, the sickening smack of Foley's head hitting the hard concrete can make anybody's stomach turn. It made me feel nauseous. I remember sitting there watching on TV and just hearing that slap up against the uh, concrete floor. For nearly 45 minutes, Foley laid ringside on the cold, hard floor of Atlanta's center stage, waiting for an ambulance to arrive. He had no feeling in the left side of his body. He was unable to move, move neither his arm nor his leg. Despite the show being long over, the fans hadn't moved one inch. Many fans were in tears at that fact. It was one, one of the most memorable moments in WCW history. Luckily, the feeling later crept back into his body, and the diagnosis was that of a severe concussion, as opposed to the initial fear of a fractured skull and possibly paralysis. Foley knew the risk he was taking by allowing Vader to powerbomb him into the concrete. He even went as far as to write out a will of sorts before the match, hiding it in the house and instructing his wife not to find it or not to find and open and open it basically unless the worst occurred. Dusty tried talking him out of it. Vader tried talking him out of it. His family tried to talk him out of it, but Foley knew that if things played out properly, this powerbomb could make his career. And in a sense, he was right. WCW had a surefire angle in the bag, and to surprise, basically to the surprise of roughly no one, they dropped the ball in the most absurdly tragic way humanly possible. Instead of using Foley's recovery time to play up his massive heart, commend his incredible will to win, and emphasize his sympathetic nature, that that was the goal, Dusty Rhodes used the next four months to completely ruin the momentum that Cactus had created for himself. In the process, he also completely nullified every reason that Cactus took the life-threatening powerbomb to begin with. The details were covered over WrestleCrap, but let's let's just say that instead of using the originally planned vignettes of Cactus slowly recovering in the hospital bed and laying and laying there prone from the terrible injury sustained at the hands of Big Big Vader, Dusty decided to go in an alternate direction. And the result was called Lost in Cleveland. It was a amnesia angle with Cactus Jack. It turned from serious, a serious sympathetic angle for Cactus with some real emotion being brought into it to create this really, really hot baby face into a comedic piece. Instead of portraying Cactus as a badly injured wrestler determined to get his revenge, Dusty turned Cactus into a clean-shaven, comedically insane amnesia patient wandering from city to city, stealing bikes, pretending to be a sailor, and befriending little children. 
To further hammer home this absurdity, Cactus was being chased constantly by a horrible, degrade actress pretending to be a tabloid reporter. Cactus, Cactus, do you have a moment? Cactus. Unfortunately for our hokey reporter, she was always one step behind him. Therefore, the vignettes continued, fans. When she arrived at the spot from which Jack had just departed, there was always another mentally ill patient there waiting to give her an idiotically vague clue. Just mind-numbingly horrible in every sense of the word. This created such a a dull moment in WCW's programming when it could have been such... um, for lack of a better term, such shocking television or or thrilling television as you're going to anticipate what's going to happen with Cactus. Can he come back from this near-death near injury, near-paralyzing paral- injury? Can he come back and take on the mastodon known as Big Van Vader? Instead, you were wondering if he was going to remember his name. By the time Cactus returned from his hiatus, the feud had almost lost every ounce of heat that it once had. Fortunately, though, Cactus wasn't about to let that stop him from going out and putting on what would be, what would turn out to be, blow for blow, quite possibly the best match of the series. The place of this was Halloween Havoc, and the stipulation, the return of spin the wheel, make the deal. The bout was about, was going to be a Texas death match, as determined by the now-rigged wheel made famous a year earlier, like we discussed, by staying Jake Roberts and, of course, Cheatham the Midget. Both men absolutely killed each other as Jack took sickening bump after sickening bump. Cactus was splattered onto the concrete without mercy, thrown out of the ring repeatedly, busted open in numerous occasions with a chair, and pummeled with a massive closed fist, landing hard enough to break his nose again. The sickest moment of the evening came towards the end of the match as both men fought for an advantage on the rampway. Vader was pummeling Jack without mercy, and suddenly Cactus slipped behind Vader and jumped onto the back of the Mastodon. Vader looked to the crowd, jumped straight upwards, and kicked out his legs and fell with all 400 pounds of his weight straight backwards onto Cactus. McFoley's kidneys were instantly ruptured, but in typical fashion, he struggled back to his feet and kept on fighting. This was done, if you recall, at Wrestle at a, the spot was done at WrestleMania 15 when Mankind took on Paul White, aka the Big Show Paul White, in that matchup when the Big Show landed flat on his back with Mick Foley on his back, crushing his ribs, which we knew from then Foley had broken ribs as a result. Because Dusty Rhodes was back in control of the company now, the match ended up with a taser attack on Cactus by Harley Race, rendering him unable to continue and giving the victory to Vader. Despite the horribly typical Dusty-inspired finish, the crowd absolutely loved the match. And for a fleeting moment, just one moment, Cactus was WCW's number one babyface. Putting all booking shortcomings aside, Cactus Vader 3 was absolutely mind-blowing. It was a great match and could very easily top the list of the most brutal violent matches in Halloween Havoc history. Give it a spin! 
We will finish up part two of the greatest moments in Halloween Havoc history with 1994 wrapping up with Flair versus Hogan, title versus career. 1993 was not a pretty year for WCW, to say the least. By the time December rolled around, the once profitable company had lost nearly $25 million in less than 12 months. Eric Bischoff's job as head of WCW was far from secure, and the company was looking at the very real possibility of going bankrupt. Even Ted Turner, the big wrestling, or should I say wrestling, supporter due to the strong ratings it would bring to his early television stations, was even himself was beginning to get nervous. Despite WCW's horrific financial woes in 93, the year before, there appeared to be a light at the end of the tunnel as the year came to an end. WCW head man, at the time, Eric Bischoff, desperate and frustrated all at the same time, had given full booking power to the nature boy Ric Flair. The the man, the man who had historically saved WCW each and every other time he was called upon. Flair was the man you can call it a pinch, to lay down for a top star or win the title to carry the company through a a very lean tenure. Flair was the man to go to. He was WCW. Ric Flair immediately put the wheels of change in motion, setting up logical old school feuds between credible wrestlers who could deliver in the ring while catapulting his feud with Vader to levels never thought possible under the tutelage of Bischoff. Flair was able to get the crowd excited once again in WCW. No more ding-dongs. The epic war between the most feared man in the business, Big Van Vader, and the most storied athlete in modern post-Luthez wrestling, Ric Flair, was set to culminate in Ric Flair's own hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina, Woo! at WCW's biggest show of the year, Starcade 1993. What resulted on the very, very, you could say, wintry night as it was snowing in December that evening was quite simply one of the most emotional moments in WCW history. In one of the more brutal matches you'll ever see, not involving guys named Greg Valentine or Wahoo McDaniel, Ric Flair overcame all the odds against a man twice his size in winning his historic 11th NWA WCW championship. The crowd was in a state of a near riot. I remember sitting on the couch, but this is one of the very few pay-per-views that I actually ordered because we had a scrambler box at the time. Um, maybe I shouldn't admit that, but I ordered this pay-per-view wanting to see Ric Flair beat Vader. The fans went crazy when this happened. Many were even crying. Many embraced their loved ones and all screaming at the top of their lungs because their hero, their hometown favorite, and the one man who who came to personify everything that separated WCW from the rest of the cartoonish pack, Ric Flair was back on top of the world. Unlike very few things that have ever happened in the WWE, that moment was real. It was real to the fans, it was real to the people inside the arena, and the viewers watching 
on pay-per-view. It's hard to explain why so many people were so crushed, like a, a part of their life had died when WCW finally went under. But when you look at moments like Starcade and moments like Ric Flair's return to Nitro in Greenville, calling you know, Bischoff slime, you know, abuse of power, and moments like Arn Anderson's retirement speech on live television, and even moments like Sting and Ric Flair's emotional last match on the final edition of Nitro, there's a certain realness that you'll never see in other organizations, because WCW was very real at the time. You could just tell that WCW meant so much more than just a paycheck to so many people of the organization. Speaking as a wrestling fan like myself, it was a shame to see WCW go under. Sure, I was pro-WWF, I was a WWF guy, but looking back at it as I grew older, I saw the competition was good for the business. It was it was still it made it exciting to see wrestlers jump from one show to the other. I just wish at certain times WSW had more of a better production value, similar to WWF. But I still enjoyed both organizations. It must have been even harder for all those who took such pride in what WSW came to stand for to see it go, and that they held so dearly the timeless moments and memories that were created and could only have been created in an organization like the NWA and World Championship Wrestling. Flair was a smart booker, despite claims by others like Mick Foley that he only looked out for himself. Flair knew the importance of having a strong heel champion headlining each show, and even more importantly, he realized how vital it was to properly groom up-and-coming babyfaces into a position where they could not only feud with him, but ultimately take the title, given the right set of circumstances, with the right combination of looks, physical ability, and basically having the total package. Not Lex Luger, but a total package, quote-unquote. Flair knew that he and he alone could create stars by allowing them, basically allowing them to defeat himself when the time was right. Many called it egotistical, but again, Flair knew how important his role was within the company. He was the man. He had the tenure behind him and booked it accordingly. Anyone who felt otherwise probably should have taken the time to put in footage of any WSW show during Flair's two-year hiatus from Turner Television and see what was missing. Even when Flair was up in the WWF, the loudest chants in WSW night in and night out were clear, we want Flair. When the time was right, Flair was willing to put younger talent over. And the crucial point there is when the time was right. Flair was very big and high on the stinger. And if it wasn't for the vast measure of support and confidence Flair had in the young wrestler, Sting could very well have never made it past the mid-card in WCW. Flair made Sting, you can say. And I think even Sting will admit that. Flair was also very big on Scott Steiner before Big Papa Pump developed. Steiner had the look, he had the ability, the charisma to go very big places in WCW before he even turned to the NWO. And Flair recognized that Instantly, on two separate occasions, if you look back, Flair offered to be pinned cleanly by Steiner to help push him into the into the next level. Dusty Rhodes then vetoed the idea and instead suggested that Rick Steiner, not Scott, pin Flair cleanly in less than a minute at a major WCW event. I was a Steiner Brothers fan, but out of the two, I look at Scott as being 
the better of the two or the breakout star, the Shawn Michaels of the group. Flair balked as a result. Personal problems with Dusty aside, Flair knew that Rick Steiner just wasn't capable of carrying a good main event caliber match on a nightly basis like the job would require him to do so. For the same reason, Flair refused to drop the title to Luger on a number of occasions in 88 when Luger was the hottest babyface in the company after the horseman stint, yet couldn't even deliver a proper hip toss. So Flair balked on that one as well. You can call it self. You can people people call it selfish. You can call it selfish, but you can also call it smart too. There's another way of looking at it. As rumor had it, Flair had his eyes on another young wrestler, another young future star that he believed could very well be the future of the company. Unfortunately for WCW, due in large part to the, the you could say the cancer that was about to enter their promotion. This wrestler was never given the opportunity to prove himself to the company. He was ultimately let go by WCW and had a brief stint with ECW and moved into the WWF as a low mid-card wrestler, low to mid-card wrestler. Once there, he was finally given the chance to prove his worth to the company. Three years later, a man by the name of Stone Cold Steve Austin was arguably the most popular athlete on the face of the planet. A few months prior to Austin's release, a meeting was held between Bischoff and Ted Turner. Turner was pretty hands-off when it came to running WCW from a day-to-day basis. But with the numbers as bad as they were and had been in, in the past two years, Turner felt that it was time to make major changes. Turner wanted ratings. He wanted media interest. And he wanted Hulk Hogan. Hogan was approaching, or he was approached, you could say, while filming the terrible Thunder in Paradise series, which Hogan referred in his biography as if it was the modern-day ratings equivalent of Friends and ER combined. Eric Bischoff made Hogan an offer he could not refuse. Hogan was not only given a large base salary, but in an unprecedented move, he was also given a percentage of every WCW pay-per-view that took place. A percentage of every pay-per-view. It's unheard of. To further put a nail in the proverbial coffin of WCW shut, Hogan was given complete creative control over his character in WCW, something that was never heard of at that time. This would be the point where you would cue your ominous music at home. Hulkster had arrived. Hogan signed the contract, signed the contract, and a huge ticker tape parade was set up for Hogan at Universal Studios. On one of, you could say, the saddest days, one of the saddest days of anyone's life, possibly, or the happiest of one's life, it's, it's amazing, the black and white side of it. You could say it was great, you could say it was terrible. You can turn on WCW Saturday Night and you saw, at that time, a rail-thin Hulk Hogan, a much thinner Hulkster, cruising down the streets of Universal Studios with, it had to be probably about 30 to 40 people following him. They were all wearing generic bright yellow Hulk t-shirts, waving Hulk Rules America red flags because they couldn't use the Hulkamania WWF shirts and WCW didn't have that Hulkamania material available at the time. So they just had generic Hulk shirts. 
and they were making less noise than you'd hear at maybe at the, what should I say? Or if you're at Disney and you saw the, um, the teacups, they were making less noise than in a line waiting to ride the teacups. That was pretty bad. Sorry about that, fans. But you could say either it was the defining moment in WCW or it could have been the day that the true NWA WCW died. Either way you look at it, it was a monumental day in the history of World Championship Wrestling. During this time, you saw some quote-unquote buddies of Hulk Hogan arrive in WCW, such as Brutus Beefcake, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Jimmy Hart, the Big Boss Man. They were employed by WCW, but they were also, not only that, but they were pushed heavily in WCW at the time. Jim Duggan beat Steve Austin for the U.S. title in less than 15 seconds. The whole situation was completely different from what WCW was used to years prior. Ric Flair was hesitant about Hogan's arrival, but yet excited to finally be able to have the dream feud that they couldn't in the World Wrestling Federation. He agreed to quickly turn heel to set up the feud with Hogan, despite being the hottest babyface in WCW at the time. He was so hot after that beating Vader. After that, you could say, thus, the historic first ever pay-per-view encounter between Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan was set for WCW's Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. The main event at Bash at the Beach saw Hulk Hogan defeat Nature Boy Ric Flair to win his first World Championship Wrestling World title. Hogan was now WCW champion. The feud was far from over there. It was time to even the playing field a bit. Flair had agreed to put Hogan over cleanly in the match under the condition that Hogan would return the favor in the near future. Two months later, at the Clash of the Champions, the main event was set to be a return match between Hogan and Flair. Hogan agreed in advance to be pinned with the help of a foreign, or should I say international object, giving Flair the title and setting up a huge Halloween Havoc retirement match between the two. On the day of the show, Hogan had a change of heart. Instead of losing to Flair cleanly and setting up the biggest rematch in WCW history, Hogan exercised his previously mentioned creative control part of his contract. Instead of losing to Flair, Hogan would now be brutally attacked early in the show and taken to the hospital. Once returning in an ambulance, Superman Hulk Hogan would courageously hobble his way back to the ring, beat up Flair for about 15 minutes, and then be counted out after all Flair's cronies came down and attacked him. The final blow-off match of the feud was still scheduled to take place at the annual Havoc pay-per-view, and the stipulation still held that Ric Flair must put his career on the line against Hulk Hogan's WCW title. Thus, after thousands of off-topic, biased words by Flair and Hogan, we get to see Halloween Havoc and the monster retirement match that would go on to shake wrestling to its very core. You sense my sarcasm there. In what many consider to be the greatest match of Hogan's career, Ric Flair and Hogan fought a battle for the ages. With Hogan, knowing that he had nothing to lose, actually making an effort to sell, and Flair bumping like a madman in the match. In typical WCW fashion, a simple match that could 
easily get over on its own merits was overbooked into oblivion, similar to what we see with TNA. It featured Mr. T as the guest referee, as run-ins from half the locker room as well were in the match. It was still a great contest between the two, and it was every bit the epic blow-off of the two that fans had been waiting for a lifetime for since they met in world in the World Wrestling Federation. When the final bell rang, Ric Flair lay defeated as Hogan posed in the ring to his adoring Hulkamaniacs. Flair's career was over for the time being. And the symbolic passing of the torch from old school WCW to new school took place. Some fans were heartbroken. Other Hulkamaniacs transferred or switched from being WWF fans to WCW fans. Some people say it was possibly the last time you saw Ric Flair in World Championship Wrestling. The true Ric Flair. As some people say he was bastardized throughout the years in Monday Nitro, taking advantage of. And you could say the old school Ric Flair died that day in World Championship Wrestling. But the story didn't end at Halloween Havoc, though. In the weeks before Havoc, the plan was basically, to the very detail, intricately, intricately laid out by Bischoff, Hogan, and Flair. Flair would lose to Hogan and Havoc, but eventually find a loophole back into WCW. That would result in a final Flair-Hogan rematch at WCW's biggest show of the year, the granddaddy of them all, Starcade. In the main event, Flair would heelishly defeat Hogan, cheating, of course. That's what Flair does. That's what a heel should do. Adding new fuel to the fire for the Hogan-Flair feud for it to continue up through 1995. As Starcade approached, Hogan once again refused to go ahead with the match. He flexed his creative control again, from his contract, the very poison which killed WCW in the long run and instead maneuvered his way into a main event squash against Brutus Beefcake at the company's uh, at the company's big pay-per-view. It's, it's Brutus Beefcake against Hogan in a main event. Terrible. If you really want to laugh, read Hogan's pitiful attempt to spin the story in a favor and basically in his favor to show that he was right in this idea and the, the logical thinking behind it in his book. It's it's amazing. It's one of the reasons why we saw WCW dying at that time period and they had to make a change and that's why Hall and Ash were brought on board to create the NWO. Trust me, fans, we'll be talking more about Hulk Hogan and his memorable moments in the history of Halloween Havoc. We saw some, shockingly enough, Worst moments in the career of Hulk Hogan that took place at Halloween Havoc. Warrior Hogan 2. Dropping a little hint there for you fans. Jimmy Hart's gone, Sting's gone, Sherry's there, T's handcuffed, Flair's out of it, Hogan's alive. What in the hell is going on? The big foot to Sherry. Down she goes. But look at this, Flair's still alive too.
you think Hulkamania is not for real, then you're mistaken. You're wrong. It lives in Detroit again. He's the world champion. He finally, Doug Dillinger gets in to unlock the handcuffs. And Flair's career has come to an end. So how can you say, Tony? What? It didn't have to end like this. It should have never gained anything like this. And Muhammad Ali is there to present the champion his trophy. There it is. Well, you people asked for it. You stood behind this man, Hulk Hogan. You wanted to see this. You're done, but you want it. I hope to hell you're happy. They are. They're standing and cheering in Detroit. again reached down and pulled out another miracle and that's why this man is who he is the hawkster oh yeah in his moment of glory here Can you believe this? Can you believe this? 
this, watch this. First, Jimmy Hart grabbed Sherry, practically just robed her. She took care of him, ran him to the camera. Sting went up to get himself his hands on her to make sure she'd stay out of the action. But look at this. From under the ring, a masked man who had been under that ring the whole day. The whole day he had to be under the ring because he couldn't go come from any place. We'd have seen him. I didn't see him. I didn't either. There's Hogan. Here's the moment the, right here. Dropping the leg on Ric Flair. Waking up Mr. T. For the one, two, three, the career of Ric Flair is over. <laughs> it's over. All right, uh, Hina, then, try to compose yourself. But then this was the most shocking. The, Take the, a look at the face of Hogan. He yanked the mask off, and then he turned around and can, looked. Can you believe that? Now, here's a guy that has been alongside of Hulk Hogan for many years. Now he's been behind Hogan. That's where Hogan kept him. 
And there you see him taking the hookster out. Chuck Tache, the WCW trainer, Hulk Hogan, Sting. And like Heenan said, one of the greatest careers of all time has come to an end. The Nature Boy, Ric Flair. You know, Tony, as I look back on this night, that's the one thing that I'm going to regret because uh, we said it before the match. I'm going to say it now. Like him or not, I tremendously respect Ric Flair and what a loss he is going to be to this great sport. Yeah, he really is. And fans, we will have an update on exactly what happened, why this butcher of a brother turned on Hulk Hogan the way he did and why this big avalanche of a man came in to attack Hulk Hogan. It was a tremendous night. Our thanks to everyone involved in World Championship Wrestling for Halloween Havoc. Rick hey, Flair. Quit crying, you big bull, baby. Look at you. All of Rick us. Flair, thank you. Thank you for 20-some years of the greatest. And I would agree. For all of us, for Mean Gene, for Bobby the Brain, and I'm Tony Schiavone. Good night from the Motor City. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Fight TV is the app that lets you enjoy mixed martial arts, professional wrestling, boxing, and traditional martial arts right on the screen of your TV when you want to and where you want to. Fight is based on Flips Media's unique cloud to tv streaming technology which works with over 350 million connected tvs and 7,000 manufacturer models the technology requires no boxes cables or tv applications fight tv is born out of the passion for fighting sports as well as the frustration of huddling over the small screen at Fight TV, they believe that watching fighting shows or combat sports on the big screen of your TV or your friend's TVs or any TV that's connected to Wi-Fi should be as simple as switching the TV channel. So check out Fight TV, the cross-section of entertainment and technology. Just open the app and it will automatically connect with your smart TV. All you need to do is choose a video and press play. The Fight TV app is your home for everything that happens in the cage, on the mat, and between the ropes. Download the Fight TV app for free from iTunes and Google Play. You're listening to the Retro Wrestling Podcast, Beyond the Bell. You can listen to Beyond the Bell on iTunes, Player.fm, the SNS Radio Network, Podbay.fm, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and our official website, btbcast.com. Connect socially on Facebook and Twitter at btbcast. Watch retro videos on our official YouTube channel, btbcast network. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be sent to contact at btbcast.com go old school with beyond the bell Well, old school fans, as we look ahead and leave 1994 in the rear view mirror, our haunted hayride continues on looking back at the best of Halloween Havoc on the next edition of Beyond the Bell. Part three of our series will look back at the years 1995 through 1998 in Halloween Havoc history. Some of the most memorable moments took place 
during these years in Havoc history. Until then, this is your spooktacular party host, Sean Beckerman, signing off. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Bell. Remember to always keep it old school, my friends.